old never sell party on the profits. So where does that go? On the internet. Welcome to the Party on the Profits podcast. My name is Aviva Sonnenrich, your host, and we are here today with a very, very special guest, Shulman Smith. Shulman, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Aviva. Yeah, a a brief introduction about Shulman. Shulman is one of the founding fathers of Snapchat. And his story is fascinating as it begins in the 21st century gold rush of Silicon Valley and it ends in, not ends, and it has taken him to the Wild West gold rush of the 1800s. So welcome, Shulman. Thank you so much for being on our show. Yeah, thank you for having me, Viva. (laughs) (laughs) That was your cat. That was Alf. Anyway, <laughs> that's what makes the home studio something else. I love it. I love it. So, Shulman, we have a lot to talk about, and this is a really, really special interview because we have a personal relationship that um, expands long before where your story that we're going to talk today about starts, but... I'm very excited for this, and I know we'll cherish it forever. Um, yeah, we went. I think we went on a camping trip together when we were, uh, you know, six or seven years old, probably. Our families. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Haven't gone on a camping trip since. Just, <laughs> just kidding. Actually, I only go camping with you. So, <laughs> so, Shulman, I heard you're a college dropout. Yeah. Um, my dad always makes sure that I uh, I don't claim to have graduated from any university. Um, uh, yeah, I um, I mean it's a little disingenuous to say that I'm a college dropout, but I did I did leave um, I did I did attend Stanford University for four years, but I left before uh, officially graduating um, in the summer of 2012. Um, I originally went in uh, with an interest in um, music technology, uh, instrument building, product design. Because um, in high school, I had done I had done uh, guitar building and crazy electronics projects. And um, um, one of my initial classes that I took. Um, as a freshman in, in the product design department, um, I met a, a fellow student who the two of us got along really well together and we did a lot of our projects together. Um, and um, he went on to start this application called Snapchat when we were, you know, juniors in college, just summer after junior year in college. Um, he and um, his co-founder Bobby Murphy. The two of them started uh, started this app. It was originally called Pickaboo, and eventually, they, you know, they they had a rebranding. And um, <laughs> around you know New Year's of 2012, they started seeing a lot of success in uh, Los Angeles high schools. And um, by the end of our senior year, he was looking for he was looking to turn it into a real company. And um, 
so uh, a friend, he kind of was had gotten in contact with um, one of my good friends at college, David, and the two of us kind of, he basically kind of convinced us that it would be a good way to spend the summer. I had a teaching assistant position that I was really didn't want to give up, but um, uh, Evan kind of convinced me, David convinced me. It was like, all right, let's, I'll, I'll go down to LA for the summer because we were going to, um, we were going to, um, uh, you know, start work out of Evan's dad's house. Um, and so, um, yeah, that was kind of how I got involved in, that's how I left, co- that's how I dropped out of college. That's sort of, that's sort of what happened. And, um, you know, by the end of the summer, um, I remember, you know, walking into the dining room where we had set up like our four, you know, monitors and everything. And, uh, you know, I don't remember if it was Evan or Bobby, but it was like we had hit, you know, a million users by the end of the summer. Um, and I wow. was, I was, I was brought on to build the Android application. So that was my whole, my whole time was like, I was doing camera stuff. There's like a thousand Android phones and they all have different cameras. And, um, Evan had a really, he had a really, um, strong vision. Um, at that time, you know, this is, this is like early days on Instagram and, and people having, you know, iPhones and stuff. And, when you would open, if you opened Instagram on an Android at that time and you wanted to, you know, take a picture or something, oftentimes it would open your, your native camera on your phone. It would like switch apps to like, you know, whatever, you know, your camera was. And then it would, it would stick the photo back in Instagram when it was done taking it. And Evan was really intent on having this like in this like full camera, full app experience. And that was sort of like my you know, challenge for basically wow. for years trying to make that happen. Um, these days, the Android camera is much, a much better interface. It's much more consistent across devices. But um, yeah, that was, that was a lot of the work that I did um, er, early on at Snapchat. Wow. So when did you start to realize that this was going to be bigger than what was happening in uh, Los Angeles Middle schools. I don't want to say just middle schools. Schools. Yeah, I think it was it was high it was high schools initially. Uh, Evan's cousin um, went to a he went to a, a, a like an iPad high school, and they had iPads, and Facebook was blocked, <laughs> and so uh, you know people started using Instagram or sorry Snapchat for um, uh, for communication, and uh, um, I think pretty almost immediately. Um, upon moving down to Los Angeles and working on, um, you know, starting to work on the, the product, um, I was kind of like looking at the, the, the traffic that we were seeing. And I think like many other people at the time, I was, I was initially skeptical about what, how people used it. I was sort of, I was like, is this sexting? And yeah, that was all the news coverage at the time. It was like, kids are sexting on this new app. And it's just, it was just like, you looked at the um, you looked at the server traffic. You know, we we were running on Google App Engine, and you know, you open up the Google App Engine graph, and you see basically all the traffic was during the school day. So it was like you know, right when kids are starting to get to school, and then they have their lunch break, and then there's like after school, and then it's like it's kind of like tails off. So it was very clear to me. It was like this isn't this isn't sexting. This is communication. These kids are talking to each other, and like this is a new way of interacting. And of course, all the adults are just writing it off as like, you know, kids being crazy and whatever. But like it was, um, 
that from that point, just seeing how, um, and I was using it to communicate with my friends one-on-one. Um, and I saw how fun it was and how addictive it was. It was just like, oh, this is, this is a fantastic way to connect with people in this world of public social content, you know, where you can just meet, talk to people one-on-one, um, with your close friends. I remember you one time bringing up the concept of private social media versus public social media. Yeah. Do you do you think there? You know, it, it's hard to say because we look at the new trends in social media. It's still very, very public. What do you think about the private social media space right now and beyond? I mean, what's amazing about the private social media space is that it's uh, it's insulated from all of the problems that exist in the public social media space. I mean, <laughs> you know, no matter what side of like the political aisle you fall on, it feels today as though the the conversation everywhere is just crazy. It's like crazy on the left and it's crazy on the right. And, you know, it's so much of there's, you know, there's there's a lot of misinformation that's being intentionally spread and amplified using social media. We all know that. And, um, you know, the amazing thing about Snapchat is, and private, I mean, I, I think of it as like private social media is that it's like, it's a place for you to be with your friends. It's a place for you to, um, to have your own personal relationships. Um, and so there's, there, there's a lot that's really that's really that can really be positive about it. Um, so, yeah, I think there's you know there's a lot of there's a lot of really wonderful components to private social media. There's we all know the experience of worrying about a post, and um, I don't worry when I send my friends a video of me finding a bird <laughs> on the street on Snapchat. I just I just don't have to worry about it. Yeah. Uh- I think it's very interesting because when you talk about your tipping point, um, you know, we we revolve in this, our communities, and we assume the whole world is what we see out of our two eyes, which is, is something that we crave. Um, but the power of the internet is a reality that you can actually reach billions of people, which is such a crazy thought um, because it's so outlandish and, and it's really, it's pretty new if you think about, you know, in terms of history, okay, the people on the radio could be heard, you know, in the 50s and the 60s and I don't know mm-hmm. the dates, but so it, it's interesting how you talk about um, reaching a million subscribers to Snapchat I, I'm curious as to how many subscribers they have today, but uh, the way that the internet can uh, grow is pretty unfathomable, I think, for a lot of people. And so it's very interesting that you got to experience that and see that firsthand. Yeah, um, there's this concept that um, I don't remember where it was introduced. I, I was reading about it most recently in a a book called How to Do Nothing by this author, Jenny O'Dell. Um, it's a great book. But she talks about this concept of um, context collapse. And um, 
this phenomenon that when you're on the internet and you, let's say you take a video and you post it to all your followers, however many that may be, there's no context around it. So, um, whereas <laughs> when you, you know, when, when I take a video on Snapchat, let's say, and I send it to, um, you know, my mom or my girlfriend, the context is there. It's my relationship with that person. And so with the massive distribution that exists, you're saying like, you can find your, you know, you can connect to billions of people. Like, um, there's like four and a half billion people on the internet or something. And, um, you know, it's impossible to have context with all those people. And so, um, that is what I think what I do like about like a podcast is like, there is a little bit there. It's, 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 it's a more, there's something more private. It's, there's more, um, it's more complicated. It's difficult for, it's more difficult for people to digest in, you know, an instant and just to grab the headline, you know? So. Whew. Yeah. Headlines are brutal for culture, <laughs> but so I have to, you know, I, I'm very excited. It was, and you know, as we segue into our next segment, I just want to talk about how much of a pleasure it has been to watch. You know, I, I, I've known you since before you worked at Snapchat and obviously have known you ever since. Um, and when you left Snapchat in, when, when did you leave? I left in 2016. Okay. So I, I, watching you leave and grow and channel your creativity, creativity and energy into something new. And watching you do that was truly incredible because um, you took it you took it very seriously and meticulously, and I'm trying to not explain it so I can let you explain it. But um, this is a really highly anticipated project because I watched you master your craft since 2016. And it is now 2021, and it has been five years of watching a true master um, get really, really, really serious about something and learn it from every angle. And so with that, I want to know what you're working on now. Well, I appreciate that. Um, I, I think the biggest feeling that I've had is definitely not the feeling of being a master, but more the feeling of like just always being a student. Um, I've actually, so I, I just, um, just released my first two singles. Um, and, uh, um, I, um, I've been reflecting a lot actually on my early days at Snapchat, um, because throwing myself, you know, from, from the world of technology and applications into the world of music, it's a totally different world in a lot of senses. Um, but what feels really similar is this experience of jumping into something that I just don't understand. Um, there's, and, and with music, what's really incredible is that there's no, there's no playbook. There's no school you can go to that's going to teach it to you. I mean, you can, you can go and you can learn theory and you can learn like jazz improvisation and, you know, um, you can go to Berkeley school of music and, you know, there's, there's a lot of great people who come out of there, but, um, when it comes to being an artist and like working on your own creative project, um, there's no, there's just, there's no rules to follow. I mean, I, I originally, I was, I was, you know, for a number of years, I was like looking for 
the equivalent of my Stanford computer science degree for music. I was like, do I, I need to go to Berkeley or I need to, you know, I need to like, and I was, I was, you know, I, I was working at a studio for a long time and I was, um, uh, kind of gophering for a great session musician who ended up becoming my producer, just hauling gear and, um, and just learning as much like he was teaching me, you know, some, he taught me everything I know about music theory and, um, um, but just like the, the, the feeling that I've had is just the same, the same experience of those early days of Snapchat when we first released the app on, I think it was like October 24th, 2012, when we first released the Android app, that is, um, that was kind of a big, big moment for me. Cause I'd been sort of trying to catch up to the iOS app. Bobby had been building the iOS app out and I was just trying to play catch up with David building the Android app. And, um, it, we, we put it out and it went out to like 120,000 people that first day. Um, something like Whoa. that. And Whoa. it was just like, and, and what, what followed was just brutal. I mean, the, the, I don't know if you've <laughs> spent any time recently reading app reviews, but people are not people do not go and review an app when they're happy with it. That is hilarious. Yeah, I mean that's generally how I feel like most comments on the internet come to yeah. fruition. Oh yeah. Brutal. So they just rip you apart. So I was sitting there. So Evan and I were actually um we were gonna launch the app, the Android app on a at a Wall Street Journal tech conference, and it was during Hurricane Sandy. And so the, the conference got canceled. They shifted us out of the hotel that we were in in Battery Park to, you know, up, you know, Times Square Marriott. And so Evan Oi. and I, Evan and I were sitting in this, in this, um, hotel room for like four days together. And like, we, Evan was like, let's just do it. We're still, re- let's just still release it. And I was like, all right, let's do it. So we released it, you know, from this hotel room in in, um, Times Square and, um, I mean, I didn't know what I was doing. Like, I was a kid out of college, like, putting out an app to, like, you know, hundreds of thousands of people. And um, it took me, I think, about three years before I felt like I, like, had a grasp on what I was doing um, with with <laughs> the app and with, you know, a complicated code base. And um, But um, it, I... I think what I'm seeing with music a little bit, what music is kind of teaching me to like reflect back on my experience at Snap and saying like, you couldn't have known what you were doing ahead of time. There was no class that you could have taken. At, I mean, it's like Stanford's computer science department is like the best place to learn computer science anywhere. And there was no, there was no class that was going to teach me how to, you know, deploy an Android app to millions of people that it just, mm-hmm. the class doesn't exist. And the class doesn't exist in music either. When you, it's like, how do you, how do you find your inspirations? How do you find your identity as a musician? There's no book you can read. There's no podcast you can listen to. It's a, it's a process. You just have to jump in. And that's what I'm sort of like kind of trying to be gentle about myself with, you know? Well, your entire Shulman Smith does have a lot of inspiration and it does have, there's, no two ways about it that I feel like calling it a brand would devalue it. It's really Shulman Smith. He comes from a different time, but he's here with us today. So where does that come from? And, and who is Shulman? 
for a long time I was trying to combine my like sort of instrument building and like, you know, electronics and, you know, tech stuff with my music. Um, and there's a lot of really amazing stuff going on. You know, you know all about it. I've, you know, talked with you a lot about, you know, the music tech world and all the plugins and digital synthesis and analog synthesis. And there's so much cool stuff. I mean, I, 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 this was like what I went to school for initially. Um, and so I thought that that was going to be my, my world. And, um, for, for a few years, that's what, that's what, what I was pursuing. And, um, it took me a while to realize that it wasn't something which just wasn't, it was, it was kind of hollow for me. There wasn't, there was, it wasn't that emotional, um, component that was, that was really working. And so, um, I kind of went, I, I, I threw a crazy process of things. I mean, I went so far as to like, I was like learning the saxophone. I was like doing like all this weird <laughs> shit. And, um, and, uh, when I was, when I was, um, learning, when I was learning the saxophone, I was, I real, I like suddenly understood how the human voice works. Because wow. the the saxophone is like it's very very human. I mean, you you played the clarinet, so you know this. Like, oh there's, yeah, there's a reed, and then there's this, you know, Body. chamber of air that you're blowing air through. And it was like, like suddenly, I understood that my voice was going to be working like a saxophone. So I kind of put everything down, and I just invested in just the under like developing my voice and just working on that and to reconnect with that. And that's what I. That's what I always loved when I was writing songs when I was like 13 in my parents' basement when no one was home. Like singing was what I loved. And so I just got back to that. And so the summer of 2019 is when I kind of like found the stuff that inspired me. Um, We went to the Telluride Bluegrass Festival and I remember walking in and just there were there were just thousands of people. And there was this woman on the stage with a guitar just singing with an acoustic guitar and I like, I almost cried. I was like, wait, this is, it's, it's simple. Making music isn't that, it's not, it doesn't have to be anything other than what you want it to be. And if that's just an acoustic guitar in your voice, then maybe that's what it is. So, so I, I basically just spent the whole summer, every, every, every weekday I wrote a new song with my acoustic guitar down here in this room. And, uh, um, by the end of the summer, I kind of had, you know, a collection of songs that, um, um, and you kind of, you, you, what you were saying about the sort of Shulman Smith character is like, you know, uh, that I, I, that summer driving back in Colorado through the mountains, like, I, I found that a lot of my, what, what allowed me to connect back to like myself and like in my childhood and like in my, my like earliest uh, kind of creative moments was like remembering those drives into the Rocky mountains. Like, you know, all those like old gold mines like that are out there. And it's like, you know, there's like these breweries today and there's like a guy with like a pickaxe and like a a beer, you know? And it's like, that stuff was really, um, it it was really embedded in my mind. I mean that I, I can't even, there've been so many times like when I'm back home and I'm driving, I'm driving up into the mountains and I'm just listening to some music and I just start crying because it's just like, I mean, it's happened with, I mean, 
what it's like string cheese incident. I've been like Colorado bluebird sky and like, you know, the, my morning jacket album, the waterfall, just like these like beautiful, you know, instrumental music, um, that is just coming from people's hearts talking about being in the mountains and anyways, that's what, um, that's what kind of drove me into finding my, what was really inspiring me. I, I, you know, I also got an education in music and technology, but I think during the COVID pandemic was when I realized, when I truly realized the impact that music actually had on me and how it really made me feel. Like you said, like, I could just listen to something and get brought to tears, and it was because we were in this situation where it's like we had Nothing outside of the walls of our house, but, you know, our Alfred the cat and technology and maybe a companion. And it and it really gave me the opportunity to understand how profound music is to me and to a lot of people. But it was that uh, raw, uh, <laughs> it's simple life that we were living that really showed me that. Um, especially when we were so afraid, um, at the beginning, at least. What music, um, did you connect with in that time? Reggae music. Oh, that's amazing. We just listened to to. this Bob Marley live at the Roxy album. Have you listened to that? Yeah. So they just put it out, right? It was just a big release. I think so. Yeah. I just, I I saw it like on the internet and I was like, oh, we should listen. We listened to it on Saturday night. It was great. Yeah. Oh man, huh, the reggae. I'm loving it so That's much. That's awesome. That's amazing. Yeah. So, so you have a single coming out March 12th? Yes. Um um I'm like getting I'm like getting paranoid that like the audio is going to cut out or something, so I'm like should I like uh, should I like just like record on my on my phone just in case, you know? I know. Um, I ch- I keep checking everything. <laughs> um so um, yeah, so, so I've, I've got a new single coming out way out West, which is the title track on, um, on my album or my EP or whatever, however we release music these days, I'm kind of putting things out little piece by piece and the, 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 the full album will be out by the end of the year, but I'm kind of releasing an EP wow. first, um, and so the title track is is way out west, and it is um, very much inspired by these um, sort of old western stories. But it is the story of it's kind of my story, but told through um, the lens of um, the first people who came to Colorado looking to build it into you know an urban center. And so I was reading, this was, you know, again, in like 2019, I was reading, um, I was getting into this like, you know, Colorado imagery and I was reading, um, the first volume in Phil Goodstein's, uh, history of Colorado. I know you, uh, you have a relationship with Phil Goodstein. I love that man. He does go, you do, you take his ghost tours. Oh yeah. Let's, let's just for everybody listening, Phil (laughs) Goodstein is the Nobody knows Denver history better than Phil. And Daniel and I found our way to Phil 
through separate avenues. But then when we both realized we were diehard Phil fans, um, uh, we bond over him. This Phil, I'll send this to him. He is a an absolute legend when it comes to Denver history, probably Colorado. And so that's Phil. Yeah, so I was looking for um, – it's funny because I was re- recently in the tired cover and I saw, you know, he's got a whole section in the tired cover, um, tired cover, fa- fantastic bookstore. I love the tired cover. Um, but, um, I ordered, I actually ordered it, um, here in Los Angeles. I was, I was looking for, I was like, I need my Colorado history. I need my Denver stuff. I'm like, you know, missing it so much and that's what's inspiring me. And so, I ordered his book online through some, you know, Amazon third-party seller or something and it arrives and I just dive into these like stories of, you know, 1858, um, the first people to come to, um, I shouldn't say the first people to come to Colorado, but because they were the, the Arapaho and I think the Ute people were there for a lot longer, but, um, uh, the, the, you know, the, the, the first sort of like, you know, prospectors looking to make it rich or whatever. And, um, you know, reading about like these names that we've grown up seeing on street signs, like Larimer, you know, like Larimer wow. came from, you know, he, he came and was like trying to establish like this, like Denver city company. And they named it after the, um, they named it after the governor of the Kansas territory. Cause they're like, Oh yeah, they'll give us the rights to this place. If you know, we name it after him. <laughs> Meanwhile, he was like out of office already. Like it took news so long to like get back, whatever. Anyway. So just, just reading these stories, like these people, they were, they were looking to strike it rich and they were finding gold and some were successful, some were not. And it was just, it was in these little rivers that we all know, like the Cherry Creek. I used to sit in high school, uh, me and my like three, be- two best friends in high school were like, we would sit and, you know, by the river, you know, for years, like through the, every single year we would sit, we would go out there and we'd like, you know, take our lunch break and we'd eat and we'd argue and whatever. And it's like, that's where they found gold. Like, that's why this, why the city grew up. And, um, for, uh, so those stories, like it's, it's in, in the song in way out West, I talk about these, the people who did, who, you know, who went there and what they came there, what they found, there were fires and there were floods and like the whole, the Cherry Creek used to flood like every year. And it would just wipe out big parts of the city until they built the dam in the 30s. Wow. And um, so just reading these stories, um, also then digging into some of the California gold rush history, um, I, 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 these, these parallels between like what California is today and what the West is today and what it was back then, they're so, they're so similar. They're, they're such parallel stories. And, um, I took a, I, one of my first classes in college, my, like was a writing class called the rhetoric of California. Hmm. Um, it was one of my favorite classes that I took in college. Um, and it was all about this, like, like, how do we speak of California? How do we speak of like the gold rush? And the, and then you, you take it, you take it forward and it's the movie industry and it's, um, the, you know, Silicon Valley. And, um, 
I mean, the booms in California, they just keep repeating themselves. And that mentality of like, I got to go to California and make it, you know, it's like that story just, it just doesn't get old. And so just seeing myself as part of this old story, um, I mean, I was part of like, I was part of an app gold rush. I mean, that's, that's what it was. It was like this little period of time when things just worked out for us and, um, and that's been happening for people in California for a couple hundred years. Um, yeah, it's um, an unbelievable parallel for you to find, but it, it's true. This is um, it's not a coincidence. The songs, the songs, really a love story though, because and it's it's how I want to move back to the you know the place that I come from and my uh, the lady the lady that I found out here uh, who's also from. This, the same place that I'm from doesn't want to, you know, doesn't want to go back yet or something. So that's the, that's the story, and it's not too, it's not too far off. So when you going back? <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> J.K. But yeah, I mean, so- it's also like you know, apropos to your your audience and your show. I mean, it's this, the 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 story of Denver is it's a real estate story. Um, hey, I mean, I. In starting a real estate channel, I have been amazed by how many parallels I can draw to real estate, both in creative ways and, you know, but I digress. You know, <laughs> with real estate, it, it it tends to follow that type of rush. For example, the gold rush happens, and then everybody goes to where the gold is. Well, the gold is generally in a water source. So then they start to build around the water source. And that's when the real estate boom starts to happen. And, it, you know, it's the same thing with Hollywood and the same thing where I, I suppose Hollywood happened first. I don't know the history, but, it you know, it becomes an epicenter and that's when the real estate mm-hmm. c- comes in right. and uh, does its thing that it... Historically, you know, continues to do. Yeah, reading about these um, these early, um, you know, these early Denver people, um, they were they were like creating these little towns throughout the West, and like there was, I think there was like, I think it was the Homestead Act that was basically like you could go out and as you know, you you set up shop somewhere, and if you stay there for a certain amount of time, like the U.S. government will, like, give you the land or something. And so they just kept doing that and hoping that one of their cities was just going to blow up. So it's like they're looking for gold. They're they're starting cities and hoping that it'll take off. And it's, um, yeah, I mean, you, you like, the, the, the history of Southern California is tends to be similar. It's like the movie industry starts, and then it's like, okay, how can we, you know, how can we sell the real estate, you know? And it's, um, it's a, it's, it's, yeah, it's it's kind of like an eternal story. Um, Unfortunately, I feel like that's when the story tends to go to get a little less uh, genuine, because you know it's it's you have this brilliant commodity, or uh, well, you'll say you have a brilliant commodity, and then it's just people who want to capitalize on. Um, okay, that I shouldn't say. You know, anybody was necessarily passionate about gold. Maybe they were just passionate about the money that would come from it. Right. But right. I think, you know, more so with the entertainment act industry it ha- and music, you know, we can't deny that L.A. isn't also a music epicenter. Right. Um, it's hard. It's hard, though, because, you know, 
going back in time and thinking about these people, there's this, there's this, um, there's this book called, uh, when the world, I think it's when the world rushed in that, um, I've been reading about the gold rush, which is basically diaries from the gold rush. And like people in the mid 19th century were living a different life. They didn't have the stuff that we have today. And the California gold rush was, I think the biggest gold rush in history. Like it was the largest gold discovery ever in human history. People came to California in 1848. There were three, there were like 3000, you know, like, you know, Western people in California. And the next year there were like 300,000. So there was a large native community there, but the, the people from the West and from, you know, Europe, like and South America, like the world rushed in literally. And, um, and it was an, I mean, it was really an opportunity for people to just change their lot. Everyone was just looking for an opportunity like that. I mean, you know, my family came mm-hmm. to America looking for opportunity as all of ours did one way or another, yeah. even going back to the native people who crossed over the, you know, the land bridge from, from, you know, Russia or Siberia or whatever it was at that time. Um, everyone's always just looking for new opportunities. Migration is fascinating and it's pretty damn consistent. Yeah. Uh, historically, it's like, I don't know why we act surprised when the exact same thing, history continues to repeat itself, but right, right. the denial is a uh, runs deep. Uh, or just not having any idea. Uh, <laughs> but so as as you know, I uh, my passion is one of my many passions is real estate. And we on the Party on the Profits podcast, which was inspired by real estate, like to chat a little bit about that. And I know that you are involved in some real estate, and I'm curious as to your involvement and um, what what led you there and why? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, real estate is kind of just like an uh, it's a it's a really particularly interesting area to me right now because um, there's a lot of conversation in California about you know housing equality and you know the, the expensive things and um, um, and then there's also this you know this parallel thing of everyone always says like you know you gotta you got to buy a house and that's how you, you know, secure yourself and make sure that you're, you know, you know, taken care of and, you know, um, and, um, so bought a house and, you know, that's the thing that, you know, it's sort of like where anyone will start generally. But, um, I've also been, you know, as soon as I bought a house, I started getting let in on like this sort of mailing list of like the neighborhood. And it was like, oh, what are they talking about? How they don't want uh, a new apartment building being built. And you sort of see, you start start seeing like, there's a great op-ed this morning um, that I that I was reading about the inconsistencies of, in California. We, you know, you can't walk... 20 feet without seeing, uh, you know, all humans matter, you know, black lives matter. Uh, we should help people, whatever. And then it's like at the, on the, uh, right behind, you know, on the same, you know, on this, uh, the, uh, the same people are, are, are preventing new housing from being built and new housing is what allows for, you know, 
black lives to, you know, for, for people to have reasonable rent and for people to have reasonable home prices. And so, you know, it's yeah. so amusing to like walk down a street and sing like, oh yeah, black lives matter, but you know, we don't want an apartment building here. Just um, not here. Yeah. It's like, oh, oh. And I mean, people will be fine. It's like, oh yeah. Like we, we can have a black neighbor here who is, has what, who's willing to spend $1.5 million on a house in this neighborhood or something. But it's like, but we don't want to degrade our re- our real estate value. And so, I, look, there's a lot of a lot of this stuff went in place for to protect people from real estate interests when people were like mowing down neighborhoods and putting highways through, you know, um, you know, black communities and stuff like that and there's a, you know, a bad bad history between real estate developers and um, you know, uh, the different communities, minority communities and most look things. The, look at the Trumps. Um oh. Yeah, and I'm gonna have to bleep that word out. <laughs> um, but I, so I think in that sense, like it almost feels like a like a. I mean, I don't want to say it's a moral obligation to build, but like to some extent, it is a moral obligation to build in this in this in this state, um, in California, um, in any state. I mean, Denver. Denver builds a lot, um, but I'm sure in some neighborhoods it doesn't. Like, there's probably all kinds of weird fights that happen, and I think we have I, to see we have to see the the interests of we have to like somehow come together on the interests of communities with when it comes to building housing and um, and uh, you know preserving things, but it's it's just you know. In the long run, nothing gets preserved. But I signed that- a petition two days ago. My dad put a petition. He said, "Here, sign this." So, what is it? He said, "It's a petition for them to not tear down that building." On the, you know, it's so funny you said that because. Well, it's it's I, not to say that I'm against preservation. Like I, there's, I love history, and I think that there's a lot of stuff that people shouldn't tear down. It's like there's yeah. it, the, none of the none of this is black and white. I mean, I'm not like a whole all in on any building. Like there's there's problems in the in the development community. Uh, probably you know it's there's everyone's got their own selfish interests, and but but just being fully against fully against any sort of development or you know fully against preservation is you know it's I, I, there's no. There's no like, there's no right, there's no black and white in, in the conversation. So I mean, I you know probably would have signed that too if it was like there's so many buildings that are beautiful and that should be preserved, and there's so many other things that just need to be built. Oh yeah. Oh, I know what buildings in my town that I'll handcuff myself to when the day the wrecking ball is there. Right. But um, so, you know, a lot of times when people talk about real estate. Philanthropy is not a direct, we'll say sibling, you know, you can own real estate and donate later, but you have done something really cool in my hometown of Denver that's uh, philanthropic and real estate involved. Do you want to touch on that at all? Yeah, I think part of the... um Part of what I think about with the with real estate is like how can how can you be better for your community and um, 
I was put into, I was connected with an, an organization in Denver that was looking for, um, they were looking to provide housing solutions for veterans and veterans have, um, you know, in certain situations, I'm not super knowledgeable about it, but they'll have, you know, housing vouchers from, uh, you know, the VA and, um, and, um, oftentimes it'll be difficult for them to be able to find a place to use those vouchers. And so, um, so this organization approached a number of people basically who were interested in, you know, real estate that was maybe like a little, you know, less heavy on profits, more on philanthropy. And they were, um, um, but still, you know, a real estate investment to take an old apartment building and basically slowly convert it into veterans housing. And, um, they would essentially like, we would put up the money up front and then they would slowly buy us out. And so eventually the, the community organization will own the building, but, um, and, and use it, help veterans and house veterans. Um, but we sort of put up the original, we give them the ability to do it and at like, you know, low, low interest rate or whatever. And so, we're not like losing money and we're, you know, getting like, you know, two or 3% or something, um, which, you know, keeps you up with inflation or whatever. But, um, but you can, you know, in the end you're sort of like, it's, you, you have a physical asset and you have an investment and you are making, you know, like money to pay stuff in your own life, but you are also long-term helping this group of people. So that was a really exciting opportunity, um, in my mind, um, I think it's early. It's 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 a, it was a new kind of initiative, um, and I think that there's going to probably be a, more of that in the future. Hey, I feel like the more you give, the more you get, and I hope so because uh, hearing that is it's about time we start r- really focusing on helping the people who you know, help, have helped us, be it directly or indirectly. And it's the least we can do. Yeah, I don't know how, you know, how these, um, how these issues resolve in the long term. I mean, I think it'll always be a battle, but um, I do hope that, you know, some like the state of California for sure needs to find, um, needs to find solutions to um, housing and, um affordability and uh yeah it's a it's these are big these are big challenges and 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 I think I would want to do my part by not getting in the way of you know increasing housing housing supply but also I don't know doing it in a way that makes sense but um yeah I mean so I was really like when you know I got all those emails from these neighbors it was just like I was like what like this is so <laughs> this is so like angry. It's like, we care about this more than anything else, you know? It's intense. It's yeah. a, I, I do believe like those neighbors probably don't quite think it through in the way that you, like the way you're approaching it is very analytically and logically. Right, right. Yeah. Whereas this is like an emotional reaction. Like, no, it's true. I have friends who can't stand the sound of construction and like, you know, it's, uh, they can't sleep and you know, it's, I, I understand everyone isn't going to be happy with construction, but like, honestly, it's kind of inevitable. Like it, construction is going to happen whether or not you want it to or not, but. Oh yeah. I guess 
if it's next to your house, you don't want it. So yeah, it's a hard, yeah. I, I do, I do try to approach these things like really analytically, but, um, the emotional component, you, you can't sell this stuff to people analytically. You kind of have to get them emotionally too. So yeah. Hey, humans are, yeah. we're a special breed. So before we go into the speed round, yeah. Is there any final things that you wanted to mention about your release coming up or Shulman? Who, why Shulman is? Um, well, the Sh- Shulman is actually it's my it's my mom's maiden name, and uh, and that's how that's how I came across the name. But it's a yeah, it's kind of sounds like a it's a real you know cowboy old west kind of thing. So it just sounded like a guy. You know, just doing his thing. So I just love that. It's a sort of, it's an imaginary world. It's like a present, past, modern, you know, modern 19th century kind of like little kaleidoscope that I kind of imagine. And um, I hope to keep making music um, uh, as Shulman Smith for a long time. And I hope to find, you know, and an audience who loves the music and I've had a really great, great reception initially and I'm just kind of keeping on going with that. Um, yeah, and- I, I'm using it as a way to also think about, um, think about giving back to things that inspire me. Uh, my first single mineral King was, um, uh, um, inspired me, you know, from Sequoia national park. It's a mineral King is a Valley in Sequoia national park. And so for me, it's a, um, it was an opportunity to, to raise funds for them and to give to them and to engage with them and to understand their firefighting efforts and their, you know, controlled burn efforts and to save those trees. These are like these amazing ancient trees that like wow. are kind of under threat. So, but, you know, that's, that's a, that's a climate change conversation and that's another big issue that, um, you know, probably more important than, uh, real estate development, but, um, yeah, Oy. it's a hard one. Yeah. Yeah. It's a scary one. Yeah. I like this idea that, um, some things are like revert, like we can fix them in 20 years down the line and some things we may not be able to fix. And the climate stuff might be, might be more urgent because we may not, we may not have as much power in 20 years to fix things. Whew. Okay, well, I can't lead off on that heavy topic. <laughs> what what goals do you have for Shulman Smith in the short if uh, coronavirus were to dissipate out of the sky tomorrow? Fingers crossed it does. What are your one short term goals and long term goals, and where can we see you? I'd and love expect to, to see you. I'd love to play some shows uh, in Colorado and in California. I. Um, I love going to music festivals in the mountains and that's where, that's where I'd like to play. I'd like to, you know, high Sierra or, uh, um, Telluride bluegrass would be pretty fun. There's, there's a lot of bluegrassy influence on my, on my, the, the first half of my album. And, uh, that'll be, those will be coming out probably in April or so, but yeah, you can find any streaming service. I'm doing music videos on YouTube and there's a lot of great, yeah, there's, there'll be a lot of good stuff coming out. So. Shulman yeah. Smith. Yeah. Look him up. Get to know him before he gets to know you. <laughs> Alrighty, so we'd like to end the party on the Prophets podcast with a quick speed round. 
where I'll ask you a very simple question and just tell me the fastest thing that comes to mind. Let's do it. Are you ready? Yeah. All right. Talking or texting? Ideally talking in person, but I... uh... I'm. I've been struggling a lot recently with uh, with my. Uh, I've always been scared of of the phone and uh, of, of my mom always used to make fun of me for calling. Like, I never wanted to call places to see how when they closed. She was like, I, was like, I didn't want to. Bo- I don't want to bother them or. So you know, but texting feels so impersonal. So I'm really kind of waffling on that one. But yeah, talking in person is my answer to that. That's funny. <laughs> Favorite day of the week. Saturday. Ooh, nice. Favorite city in the United States besides the one you live in? Denver. Fair. Nickname your parents used to call you? My mom's always called me Daffy. Cute. (laughs) How long does it take you to get ready? For what? To hit the club. (laughs) Oh, you know, not too long, but not too short either. I think Lauren usually gets out of the house before I do. That's a terrifying thought. (laughs) Actually, okay, now that I know you two, you both are meanders. Yeah. (laughs) On a scale from 1 to 10, how good of a driver are you? Oh, wow. Um, I think I read something once that people, like, are, like – Something like eight out of ten people feel like they're like a better than average driver. So like that's not possible. So but I think I'm a better than average driver. Um I like driving and um uh I think I'm probably better at navigation than I am at driving. Like I don't know how how good I am at driving compared to other people. Let's say I'm a maybe six or seven, but uh I think I'm a good navigator. So Okay. So there I, I am like with all the rest of the people who think that they're better than average drivers. <laughs> well, they're not here, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> who was your first celebrity crush? Jeez, huh. that's a really good question. I mean, I don't know. I, I, I don't know if... I'm trying to, like, remember any celebrity crushes, like, as a kid... I must have had something. Honestly, I like it was probably okay. like it was probably like a my mom used to get those like this Victoria's Secret catalogs. <laughs> it was probably like someone in the Victoria's Secret catalog is like, oh, who is this? But I don't know. I don't really remember celebrity crushes. <laughs> no lasting impressions. Okay. More of a local kind of guy. <laughs> if, if you could travel back in time, what period would you go to? Oh. I mean, just in the theme of the, you know, the podcast, I had, I've got to I've got to go back to the Pikes Peak Gold Rush, you know. <sighs> Love it. And the place you want to travel the most. I would love to spend a week like in a in like a a rural cottage in England, just reading in the rain. Woo, that's cool. <laughs> wow. I, I've been watching, we've been watching a lot of like P- British, uh, like 
period pieces and, um, uh, you know, Br- Bridgerton, you know, I've, I've loved watching that stuff growing up too. So I've just always had this like romantic vision of, um, just the English countryside with the rain and yeah. Love it. Yeah. Well, thank you, Shulman, for being on the Party on the Prophets podcast. <laughs> thank you for having me. This was awesome. I think we got everything recorded, which is a big win. And um, go listen to Shulman Smith. I will link out all of his uh, music in the bios here. And thank you again for being on our show. Thanks for having me, Viva.